Suzanne Clark, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for the first of a series, a new series from the U.S. Chamber Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we invite you to join us as we talk to a number of preeminent experts and thinkers about the path forward in the next phase of this crisis return to work. All of us are wondering when and how America will get back to work. Because getting back to work doesn't just mean getting back to work, it means getting back to school, getting back to worship, getting back to our charities, getting back to feeding our families, to volunteering, going to sporting events and concerts, birthdays, weddings, honeymoons. Getting back to work means getting back to life as we know it. At the Chamber, we firmly believe, and you've probably heard us say, we believe we'll return to work when we return to health. And that when will be determined in really close consultation with public health officials and medical experts. Today, we're really fortunate to be joined by one of the most respected voices in this discussion, Professor Bill Hanage. He's an epidemiologist at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health, and he's put forward a very thoughtful piece on when we might return to work and the health milestones we have to reach along the way. We look forward to hearing his thoughts and asking questions and hearing your questions during today's event. Quickly, let me say a word about the rest of the series, which is that as we explore how we get back to work, how do we determine it's safe? We know that this will be likely gradual, a phase-in process based on sector, size, region, business type, the health status of workers. As the New York Times columnist Ross Duthot said, there's likely a semi-normal before we get back to normal. So whether this temporary period of semi-normal begins in weeks or begins in months, the American business community, employers and employees have to start preparing now. When we get that green light, we want to be ready to put our foot on the gas, not start to map out the route. So we know there's no playbook and there's no precedent. So we wanted to put this series together to help all of us begin to think through these issues. Uh, the learnings and the ideas in this series will help inform the work the U.S. Chamber is doing to help businesses anticipate and address challenges they're going to confront and to give recommendations to governments as well. So business readiness we know is going to be essential for this next phase, and we know that it's going to be intertwined with restoring public health, rebuilding the economy, and resuming our lives. So we're looking forward to delving deeper into this, and we're going to start the discussion right now. So uh, Professor Hanage, thank you so much for being with us today. And let's start with the one that everybody's asking about, which is what has to happen for us to feel a sense of normalcy? What are we going to have to see in the world to know it's time? I think that the most important thing about handling this pandemic is going to be dealing with the initial surge. Now, if you look in places like New York and Louisiana and elsewhere, you can see there's a sudden surge running into healthcare, and that is the thing which is causing us to have to do these physical distancing measures, like the reason I'm talking to you like this and the reason I'm not going to the office and all of the issues which are happening all over the country. Now, what we are trying to do with that is to stop the flow of new infected people into the healthcare system, because we're only going to see that slow roughly three weeks after we take effective action. So the goal is to get over that, bring things down to the point where we can start expanding the capacity of healthcare to deal with it. And at that point, we can start thinking how we might get into this kind of space beyond 
the initial search. And that is the kind of time that we're talking about. You have, you have mentioned, and we're all reading about and hearing about the importance of ramping up testing in order yeah. to get back to normal. Can you talk about how we increase testing and also what, what type of testing? I assume we're talking about not just testing for the virus, but a blood test for antibodies as well. That's absolutely correct. So in the first place, you have a test for the virus, which can tell you whether or not you are infected at the time. That works by detecting viral genetic material, and it, it can be taken from a swab, which is either your nose or the back of your throat. And there are a lot of such tests which are running at the moment. There are, we are actually not clear what the best tests are. We're gathering data on that all the time. But then there's also an antibody test. Now, the antibody test does not tell you, are you infected? It tells you that you have been infected by detecting the presence of antibodies against COVID or SARS-CoV-2 in your blood. Now, those are being developed and it's quite, it's important when you make them that you can distinguish between immunity to SARS-CoV-2, the pandemic virus, and the other beta coronaviruses which we encounter all the time. Um, because there are two other beta coronaviruses which cause just colds and which you've probably had. And as a result of that, if you cannot tell the difference between them, then you're going to be, uh, then you're going to start thinking that people are immune potentially when they're not. And those tests taken together are going to tell us a lot of really important stuff. Firstly, if you're testing people, you can identify them and isolate them and do all the good contact tracing, all that good basic epidemiology that you want to do to prevent further surges, further things that overwhelm healthcare. And we can, that's, that should be achievable. And the other thing will be that if we can find out that a substantial fraction of the public has been infected, had very mild symptoms, and now has evidence of immunity, then it's possible that those people might be better able to go out and you know, live their lives comparatively normally. I want to be very careful, though, to state that we do not yet know exactly how much immunity, how much antibody in the blood is necessary to reflect neutralizing immunity. These are all things that we're learning about the virus, you know, as we're going along. There seems to be a widespread of guessing or, or hypotheses, maybe is a better scientific word to use, about how many people could be immune. One issue is how long you're immune, but a different issue is how many people are likely immune, uh, whether that's a very small percentage of the population or could be bigger. Do you have a view? Suzanne, that's a really good question. Um, so the first thing to note is that if you look at some of the data which are coming out of Europe, um, there was a village in northern Germany that was very badly hit as a result of a super spreading event at a local um, carnival, which took place in, in February. And there have been a, there were a large number of severe illnesses and deaths within that village. But then, because it's quite a only about 500 people, scientists were able to go and take blood and test the people there in order to figure out exactly how many of them showed signs of immunity. And the answer came back and it was about 14%. 14% showed signs of having been infected. Like I say, I don't know whether or not they are immune, but mm. they might be. That's so interesting. While we're on testing, uh, while you and I were in the virtual green room, uh, you mentioned a really uh, interesting kind of test that uh, you had been involved in that might help us understand in a, in a broader, faster way what's happening in entire communities. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. That's this is um, there are many sources of innovation which are going to come out of this. Um, 
One, which is a pretty simple thing to do, is to examine sewage. If you look at sewage, you can find evidence of viral genetic material in it because a subset of people do, who are infected, do shed virus in their stool. So if you look in sewage, you can get some measurement of how many people might be infected in the community. So that's up at a preprint at the moment, I want to point out. This is one of these things which has not yet been peer-reviewed. It is in the process of being peer-reviewed. And if we are able to find things like that and perhaps use it to quantify exactly what the population prevalence is in a place and we can be monitoring uh, monitoring sewage to get an idea of when it's starting to tick up again and I want to be clear about something that 14% of people who are in, in, who might be immune will not be sufficient to provide population level immunity for mm -hmm. that you're going to need closer to 50% mm -hmm. or maybe more however if we are able to very smartly monitor what's going on and we can start putting on the brakes in future to avoid these catastrophic surges, then that's going to be a really good thing we can do. And that is surely compatible with some kind of return to what you might think of as halfway normal. You know, it's uh, you and I were also talking about the fact that we are optimists or people who look for innovation. You know, uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers used to say, look for the helpers. You know, and it's fun to look at the look for the innovators as well, both in terms of the business and the scientific community and what they're thinking about. So as we look around the world for examples of what a return to normal will encompass, there's some people overseas in different countries that have talked about and even tried to implement a sort of immunity passport or an immunity registry. Do you think that that's where we're going to end up, that part of a semi-normal will be able will be documenting people who do exhibit immunity? I think that it will be really helpful to know how many people exhibit immunity. Um, as I said, it's going to be a quite a long time before we know exactly how much does provide, how much immunity is actually conferred by the initial infection. And it's very hard to know at this stage. Think about all of those people who are asymptomatic or very mildly infected. Are they mildly infected because their immune system was very good and effective and just stamped on the virus immediately? Or did they not actually develop severe enough disease in order to get their immune systems involved? And these are things that we're just not going to know until we're past this initial surge and we can start doing more research. It's a, I'm, I am, like you said, rather optimistic about the fact that if we can manage to keep control and manage to stop it getting it outpacing us in these early stages, that the innovation and the ingenuity of people across the nation and around the world will be surely equal to finding something which is much closer and uh, much more tolerable over the longer term, because this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. But the idea that you don't know how long you could be, I'm using all the wrong pronouns, you know, if, if we can't tell how long one is immune, it still implies that there's immunity for some period of time. In other words, that you can't get reinfected at least immediately. Is that right? It, to the best of what we know now? It would appear to be the case. Now, what I'm going to go here is I'm going to talk about other coronaviruses because we know a lot more about them than we do about this. If you talk about the original SARS or if you talk about the other innocuous beta coronaviruses that I mentioned earlier, they produce immunity, but it kind of, it is, it doesn't last a terribly long time. And essentially, depending on the combination of the amount of immunity and cross-reactivity with those, and the extent, which is still uncertain, to which the virus isn't affected by changes in the weather, you could get absolutely anything from a huge second wave coming in the fall to uh, a outbreaks every year, to outbreaks every few years, 
or really just about anything. And like I said, we unfortunately we don't know that at the moment because um, as you know from the testing debacle, we've had hard enough times figuring out necessarily exactly who has had it, let alone figuring out how long they are going to be immune for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's go back to return to work. So let's say a governor or here in D.C., the mayor starts to lift some of the restrictions and, and local businesses getting ready to bring their workers back in, but wants to do so in a very prudent way. Who do you think ends up going back to work first? Are there What's phase one? What's phase two? Um, and what, what about the gaps in between the callback? So I think the most important way to answer that is possibly to start the other way around and to think about who um, almost should not be going to work. Um, And the people who should not be going to work are those who are vulnerable um, or who have comorbidities in any way, who are somewhat, who are in an at-risk group. Those people, I think I'd recommend for a long time to adopt what um, my colleague Maya Majunda from Harvard Medical School has called salutary sheltering, which is kind of staying in place in order for health and limiting contacts, enacting, you know, the good old infection control, which I personally have been doing since the middle of February, which is, you know, anyone who comes into the house, wash their hands for 20 seconds, get good lather, do that yourself several times a day, don't touch your face. You'll notice I scratch my face with my glasses. Um, and while you're going outside, avoid crowded places. I mean, that's something I'd recommend for those people for a long time. As for others, I think we're still going to be really wanting to get people who work within healthcare because there are some people who work with vulnerable groups in healthcare who are having to stay away from them or be minimally uh, linked to them to avoid uh, infecting them. And of course, there are essential people who work in grocery stores and stuff like that. But I think that we can see, I can foresee a situation in which we have things which are more normal um, in the sense that you're able to go into a restaurant, but the restaurant is only allowed to have a certain number of people within it. Now, the key thing here that I want to get across, and it's what I've been trying to put across throughout my messaging on this, is that it's not about necessarily eliminating transmission. I mean, at the moment, because we've got surges, it pretty much has to be about bringing it down as low as possible. But it then becomes about reducing it and, you know, reducing the impact on healthcare and preventing the catastrophic surges building up again. And I think that's compatible with quite a lot of stuff, to be honest. And one of the things which we are only beginning to talk about now, but you'll notice that CDC started making recommendations in this direction, is the use of masks, which I think you might we should possibly talk about under a separate heading. No, I think that's right. And I think we've got questions coming in um, from the audience, which I would encourage you to keep uh keep bringing in. So you're getting a mix of kind of my questions and some of the audience questions here. Uh, One of the questions we get a lot from employers is, okay, so if I'm fast forwarding to a time when people are coming back to work, what equipment should I be trying to procure and should I be trying to get it now? Does that include test kits? What kind of PPE? You know, what is it that I should be trying to get now to be ready? Or, or eventually, what am I getting? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, it will depend a little bit on the sector which you're talking about. And at the moment, I can tell you that the supplies of PPE are really, really stretched. And there are, it's a bit of a kind of, it's a really sort of crazy situation out there in the world trying to source enough for different places at the stage of the pandemic. I've been writing just before I came on here about the importance of maintaining PPE for the non-COVID cohort for those people who are in healthcare but who are not infected by the pandemic because you don't want them to become infected. Now, I think that masks are, I'm still a little bit 
out on masks because I would like to collect more data. However, when we were going into this, um, I would have, if you'd asked me, I'd have said the type of masks which you are likely to see are unlikely to stop you getting infected. Um, and they may even make you more likely to get infected because you fiddle with them, which means you touch your face more or they get wet, which means that you may find them much less effective at you know, preventing droplet spread, or you may end up, there, there are multiple questions around the correct use of masks. However, the counterpoint to that is that masks used well, and people would have to be trained in how to use them well, but you know, people can, people can learn. Uh, masks used well may be able to prevent, and if you can prevent transmission, then basically you're doing this thing which, you know, you're, you're able to do something which is exactly what we're trying to encourage people to do at the moment. The thing about COVID-19 is that it transmits from people who are unwitting. They do not know they are infected. So because they do not know that they are infected, it's moved on before they even are able to sort of think, oh, I've got a cough, I better stay home. Now, if you can prevent that happening, by putting those people into masks, then suddenly you would have an opportunity for many, many more people to be able to move around and maintain something which is much closer to normality. Now, I'm saying that because of the fact that I want to temper this for the fact that I would like to see more evidence on the use of masks. There was a paper that was studied and um, came out from Hong Kong a few weeks ago which was looking at mask um, ability to prevent transmission of flu and indeed COVID-19 within households, and it suggested that they could be fairly effective. So again, I want to, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm just reporting on the data, but I would think that PPE like masks is probably going to be very important. But I would also caution that it's the wild west out there at the moment, and it's very difficult to ensure enough PPE for healthcare. So again, we are an ingenious, we are an ingenious species. We will manage to come up with ways of getting more of it um, and keep an eye on the supplies of it. But th that will be something to think about as you're moving forward. So having already declared myself an optimist and, and <laughs> confident in, in both the scientific and business communities being able to innovate here, if we think about the availability of tests and the and separately the availability of PPE. Should that be a reason to be pessimistic about how soon we can return to work? I mean, a lot of the audience questions are about, you know, should I be watching for X number of tests available? Will that be my first clue that we're getting back to normal? Is it really an availability of tests issue first? And so this availability of tests, this availability of PPE, is, is that reason to be more pessimistic? I, I think in the it depends on what kind of time scale you are thinking of. If you are thinking that you're going to be, everything's going to be back to normal by May, then I think that that's, I think I'd be quite pessimistic about that. Um, I think that if I were able to look and see big changes in the natures of the tests and stuff that were available, and I mean, it has been remarkable to me that we've been waiting so long for good serological data, especially from uh, the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, over in China. It has been a very long time waiting for that, but we are now beginning to get some in, and I think that it is probably going to be more, it, it tends me a little bit more towards optimism. I think the thing which is going to be most difficult for people to wrap their heads around is that large gatherings of people are probably not going to be safe for really quite some time. Small gatherings, I think could have, I think it is possible that they, with appropriate um, awareness, could be could be um, achieved relatively soon. And of course, like I say, antibody testing will be key in that because you'll be able to be considerably more relaxed if you think you might have immunity. 
I should point out, though, when it comes to the antibody testing, that there is a, it, I'm not saying that this is definitely the case, because again, it's one of those things we're starting to learn, but it's possible also that some types of exposure and some types of antibody, um, some types of effects of the initial infection on the immune system could make you more vulnerable to future um, infection. And so this is again, one of those things which we are beginning, which we are having to learn. When we are, you know, when we are collecting data, when we are a little bit down the line, then that will be a lot more helpful. I am personally viewing this initial surge as an opportunity to get as much data as I possibly can in order to be able to game out um, scenarios for the months after. I would currently suspect that you will be seeing things which are a new normal. It will not be normal, but it will be a new normal that you can get your head around in more ways than you can now by the summer. However, I think that we have to remember this is a pandemic and they don't come along very often. This is the first since 1918-19 on this scale. And even if we take that um, that German uh, village in which 14%, 1-4% of people show immunity after their initial surge, in order for us to get population level immunity, we will need 50% of the people to have been infected or more, or we will need a vaccine. And so we have to be able to get there in such a way that we are preserving the most vulnerable in our community and that we are maintaining economic activity because economic activity is an important thing. However, we have to recognize that if we allow these surges to build up and they seriously threaten healthcare, then that in and of itself will damage economic activity. So we've got a bit of a tightrope to walk. So that, that led to a whole bunch of questions piling in and it, the audience is mind melding around the top one, which is small versus large. You made a delineation there. And so what is small and what is large in your mind? Um, small regarding what exactly? Oh, I'm sorry, um, people gathering. Ah, yes. Okay. So, um, for instance, I think that sporting events are going to be very, very difficult. Although it, I can imagine, you know, I live, I live in Cambridge. Uh, you know, I'm a Red Sox fan. I can imagine people going to some events, but they would have to sit a certain distance apart. Um, you know, that, that is something which I would be prepared to imagine. Um, I can imagine other sorts of events taking place when you would again with a certain amount of distancing happening to reduce the risk of transmission. Because the, the most important thing, one of the most important things in the emergence of a new infectious disease like this is the capacity for what we call super spreading events. And super spreading events happen when an infected individual who may well not know that they are infected walks into a context where they make a lot of contacts with a lot of people and they have a lot of opportunities for transmission. And that can cause the number of cases in the community to leap very rapidly from you know virtually none or trickling along and under control to suddenly you've got 60 to 100 all of them transmitting all of them building all of them about to hit your local icus well not all of them and those of them that are going to hit your local icus which will be a proportion will do so about three weeks after they are infected and so we want to do everything we can to prevent those sudden jumps and those super spreading events and they tend to be associated with large gatherings i would i mean i think we have to get data to be more informed about this but you can see that places already which have implemented um, social distancing earlier on appear to be doing uh, appear to be doing better there's a lot of other stuff to go into here it's very difficult to get into counterfactual no of course um you know you said something else that struck me as interesting about 
pandemics don't come along that often. You know, that's an optimistic view too, I think. Is this a once in every hundred years event? Or is there something about globalization, international travel? Uh, are, there, are there things that are changing that could make this come along more often? Are the, are the scientists in your field coalescing around a view yet? I think probably the scientists um, in my field, and you know, I, I teach in my class, I teach disease emergence. And one of the things we teach is, I teach is like the predictability or otherwise of it. What are the, what are the properties of things that pose high risk? Um, and I think that we have to these are rare events. The last one, which was on this kind of scale, and we still don't really know how bad this one will turn out to be, was the 1918-19 flu pandemic, which mm -hmm. killed about 50 million people. That's five zero million people worldwide over the course of um, a few years. We have then had other flu pandemics, and we've kind of been focused on flu pandemics as a result of that, because it was such a severe event that it made us, you know, we, we noticed it a lot more, and we kind of been watching for flu pandemics. And we did actually see some. Um, the most recent was in 2009, and that was the um, H1N1 pandemic. And the interesting thing about it was it was pretty mild in comparison. I mean, it still killed a large number of people. Uh, estimates vary, but probably between 500,000 to one and a half million worldwide. Uh, so it killed a lot of people, but not on the same scale. The difficult thing in understanding what's going to happen with a pandemic is that in the early stages, you naturally see the most severe cases. That's those are the ones you know. Those are the ones you test, and you have no idea of how much might be bubbling along underneath, how much mild infection, and how much maybe pre-symptomatic or minimally symptomatic infection. And like I've said, we have no idea how much immunity those people have, and we only learn it later. So there was a lot of a lot of very serious head scratching in my community about what is the true mortality rate, what is the true spectrum of severity, um, and we are still determining that. I think we're beginning, I, I personally think that we're beginning to think that it's probably got quite a lot of asymptomatic uh, infection or minimally symptomatic infection, but that isn't necessarily cause for optimism because while it's good for those people perhaps, uh, it does make it much more difficult to control. And the thing that we need to think about with this is not so much the case fatality rate, that will be important to know in the future, but right now, we need to be stopping our communities ending up in the same situation that parts of New York have been. Or, you know, if you go to, if you were, I mean, go to the Bronx, you know, talk to the people in the ERs there. I mean, it's it's been truly, truly difficult. And when we can stop this again, through a combination of testing to detect new infections, I think we need also a very proactive attitude to preventing the building of new ones, of, of new surges. And we can do that by, identifying cases and then testing their contact. And then, you know, while those contacts are being tested, employers should probably say, hey, it's okay, you're being tested for COVID, stay at home. And then when it comes back negative, come on back in. Uh, and then we can do things like test for community uh, transmission by looking in sewage. And then we can identify a group of people who we are pretty sure through various different routes of studies are immune. And we can give them some kind of identification to enable them to show that they are immune. We could also, use elements of digital technology to identify whether or not people have been in an area where we suspect that there is high risk of community transmission and, and encourage them to be tested. These are all, I mean, whenever I talk to people, um, and I talk to people pretty much every day who feel dispirited 
um, I always sort of try to reflect to them that I, I can think of about half a dozen ideas every day for what could be done to make it better. I don't have time to work on all of them, but if somebody, if, if that can happen to me, and I'm sure it's happening to other people all over the country, and we just need to be able to put them into operation and find the best ones and then start putting them to work on the pandemic. I love that. Uh, I love the optimism of that. I'm going to have you call my teenage daughter later. Uh, kidding aside, let me ask a question that I'm both getting from the audience and I think we're all trying to figure out, which is if you really think about getting back to work in some more usual way, more normal way, some new normal way, the underlying childcare system and kids being in school or if it's summer camp is really important to parents being able to leave their homes, right? Yeah. And similarly with mass transit. So both childcare and transportation become important in this world. And if we're and the and what I worry about is the solutions conflicting with each other. So if we want to have staggered work hours so that you are uh, not having as dense of a workspace, how does that jive with then needing more mass transit or needing childcare at different hours? So what do you think about the demand on schools and childcare? How does that reopen and in what order? Uh, that feels like an important underlying those, principle. Those are, Suzanne, those, those are stunningly important questions. Um, I completely agree. And I say that partially because um, I am in a house with my wife, who is also an infectious disease epidemiologist, doing a, a Zoom call in the next room. And we have two children downstairs who I think are probably going feral at the moment. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what they're doing, but I'm pretty sure it's not schoolwork. Um, now, the difficulty here is the role of children in infection. And we don't really understand what that is at the present. So the very first report suggests that children did not get infected, which would be great. However, those were largely because of the fact that, as I said, the first things that we see are the people who are the most severely infected. And while kids can get severely ill and die from COVID infection, they're much less likely to than the older age groups or people with other comorbidities. Now, that means that we under, underestimated the role of children in the infection, and we still, to this day, do not really understand the, their role in transmission. It is possible that they can become infected, they can transmit to each other, but they are very weakly transmissible to other groups because they do not have very florid symptoms. It's also possible that even though they don't have very florid symptoms because they don't realize they're infected and they make a lot of contacts, they are more likely to transmit in total to other groups. Those are answers to which at the moment we just do not know. And it's another of the reasons why I think it will be really, really good to get serology data, to get antibody data from children in order to be able to estimate whether or not they actually have been infected. And if it turns out that they, if it turns out that children as a group are less likely to be infected um, given common exposures than everybody else, then I think that that makes it much more likely that we can start going into schools. But for now, uh, I think that if you had, if you, you know, I haven't had time to think about investing in anything, but I think that distance learning is something which will be a very extremely valuable and important thing to be working with uh, going forward. You know, I have so many questions. I don't even know which direction to go in next, but let me ask you this. Since there are places in the globe that are ahead of us on this, ahead of us in the curve um, and starting to reopen, are there lessons that you're seeing any place that you think might apply here in the States? Yeah, um, I think that, so the interesting thing about places that are 
beginning to reopen is the risks of reintroduction. Um, the I think the key word is going to be vigilant. So you can look at, I mean, we have early examples of places that did well and which are now starting to struggle. So those are places like Singapore, um, Hong Kong, South Korea, which complete, which handled an early outbreak and did very well with a huge amount of testing uh, and which are now beginning to have problems with introduced cases and again, a build, building surges of uh, new infection. So what I think that we're learning from that is that it's probably going to be the case that you, we may have to be prepared to enact multiple rounds of physical distancing. Now, I do not want to be in this situation again that we're in right now. I do not want there to be a the types of measures which have been necessary and absolutely crucial to avoiding those is going to be learning from our mistakes. And if we can learn from our mistakes, because you know we are not able and we should not. I do not want to see the kind of uh, extreme actions which were taken in parts of China. I would much rather the sort of things that turned out to be effective in South Korea. If we are able to do those sorts of things, then I can see that the goal is it is not to necessarily eliminate the disease, although if you can from your neighborhood for a period of time, that's wonderful. What we want to do is to prevent there being these damaging, uh, damaging surges of damaged healthcare. So the, we have testing, we have in order to monitor these things, we have preparation to take decisive action, and then also we should build up healthcare because as you've, you know, as we've seen, having a bit of spare capacity is absolutely essential. You don't want people to be fighting over who gets ventilators. You don't want to be having people fighting over who gets dialysis and things like that. These are, remember that this is a pandemic and it will not go away. But what we can do is make it a more livable experience and make sure that, you know, more of us get through it and out the other side. Well, from your lips to God's ears, as they say. Um, let me ask you a final question here, which is about timing, right? And I, uh, I know that it's given your academic background, asking you to predict things is, is largely unfair. So my only assurance is that we won't hold you to them. But I'm curious if you think about there's a there's a block of things we talked about about as the sooner we could get knowledge and understand, you know, the children and 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 get serological testing on the children and understand how communicable this disease has been through children, that could help us reopen schools. So we talk about examples of knowledge from studying the virus and how that would help. Then we talk about the ability to treat this virus. You know, when could uh, there be medicines available that could at least treat it? And then, of course, there's the holy grail of an actual vaccine. And so if I'm thinking about them in the right order, I would assume we have knowledge before we have medicine, before we have a vaccine. But what, do you, what, is the, what are the guardrails of timing for those three things? Those are, those are all very good questions indeed. And you're, you're right, I'm going to preface this by pointing out that this is necessarily uh, going to be somewhat speculative. Um, so let me start with the vaccine. We, there are multiple, there are obviously very, very many workers who are trying to develop a vaccine and hopefully you know, one will be found which will be successful. I will point out at this stage that there isn't a vaccine for the other coronaviruses. So this is going to be very, very closely watched. That, with the necessary testing, is 
just possibly a little over a year to 18 months away. Maybe I can you can pull it back a little bit, uh, a little bit more towards the present. It might be aided by some innovative trial designs, which um, accelerate the kind of data that we would want to get and would be more effective. And if you're interested in those, I know that my colleague Mark Lipsich is working very intently on trying to develop them. Um, the other information that you were talking about will probably be available, I would say, after this first search. And the reason I say that is because I have been watching this nervously since the early part of January. And the thing I've noticed in common everywhere that it has happened is that there's this, so things happen gradually, then suddenly. It's the nature of an exponential. And the consequence is that people think that they don't need to invest in testing or learning these things because it's not there. And then suddenly it is there. And then suddenly you're just trying everything you can to avoid the worst possible outcomes. And that means that people who collect the data that people like me want are too busy because they are trying to actively save lives. Once that period is passed, we will both have more, we will both have more data, but we will also have the luxury to be able to gather things elsewhere. This is, if you look in China, in Wuhan, the data is quite patchy. If you look at Shenzhen, for instance, or other neighboring areas which were less severely affected, we get actually more good data from there. So again, mm -hmm. I think that we are probably going to get the best sort of data in, over the next few months, which is why my very cautiously optimistic notion of some things becoming much closer to normal than they are now is probably looking towards the summer. Uh, I think that up until then, if your community has not been visited by this yet, then you should be prepared for it to be and to sort of decide in advance what you're going to do in order to what action you're going to take to avoid it. Um, I think if it has been, then obviously follow your local, you know, your local public health agency's advice. Um, advocate for doing everything you can for the healthcare workers who are in the front line and who are going to be dealing with this. And get your thinking caps on because there are this this produces opportunities as well. This is you know change is a constant. This is just a particularly strong force majeure type of change. And if you're able to innovate within this space, if you're able to innovate at this time, and if you are able to accept that this is a pandemic which is not going to go away in the night, then then I think they will probably be in a better position to face the months ahead. Well, I can't think of uh, a better closing statement than that one, uh, Professor Hanage. We've been really lucky to have you with us to start this Path Forward series with an overview of so many of the topics that business leaders are thinking about, from timing to whom to trust, to uh, vaccines, to testing, to PPE. You've really done us a big service in laying this out for us. And I thank you very much. I hope you will count on us to be part of the solution and come back anytime that we can help you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really am very keen to help everyone manage to get as close as they can to any kind of solution. I want to say thank you for having me on here. and I want to thank everybody who's been listening or, or indeed watching. Well, thank you. God bless you and your family and your work. And to the audience, uh, we'll look forward to the next installment of Path Forward as we start to drill down now on each of the topics that we covered today in this overview. As always, if we can make this better for you or more helpful for you, I hope that you will be in touch with the U.S. Chamber. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves, take care of your families, and wash your hands.
Path Forward is a production of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. Visit uschamberfoundation.org to learn more about our work and about the Path Forward series.